We at Global Nomad Hacks are peace heroes. By playing Peace and Harmony program during this episode, we help create one million pockets of peace by dissolving stress and tension. To be your own peace hero and get your own copy, go to peaceandharmonydownload.com. Welcome back to Global Nomad Hacks. Today, it is my pleasure to introduce you a dear old friend, Robert Carlbo, who is a master of tennis professional with more than 35 years of tennis teaching experience. Now, his story is far more interesting than tennis, which tennis is fabulous, of course. But we met actually way back in boarding school, and I have to say he was probably one of the first Swedes that I became very close friends with, but he also happens to be a black man. So he has a very interesting story of how that came about. First of all, before we get into that, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm really excited and honored to be on your podcast. And um, I followed you on both of your podcasts and I've learned quite a bit from you. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for being a good fan. And, and just it's been such a treat reconnecting. I always joked with my husband that the first Swede I ever met was a handsome black man. And he's like, what? How did that possibly happen? So your mother is Liberian and your your father was Swedish, but yes. your story is far more complex than that. You've got a really fascinating background. Can you share a little bit of sort of where they met and sort of how that story came to pass, which is really a classic third culture kid experience? Yes. So my parents met in Liberia. They met at a company called Lamco which at the time was one of Africa's largest iron ore companies in Liberia. My father, his story is a little interesting. He uh, was born in Sweden. And uh, after getting his education in Sweden, his law degree, went to England. And then after that, he went to the Middle East, specifically to Syria. And he went there looking and working for a water company. They were looking for water. And he was out there in the desert doing that. My mother, born in Liberia and educated in Switzerland, after her education in Switzerland, she moved back to Liberia to work at the Lamco Hospital in Liberia. And my father, after his stay in Syria, uh, found a job in Liberia, and that's where the two of them met. So they met in Liberia, my mother's birth country. So that's where they met, yeah. I love it. I mean, it, it just shows that, you know, love knows no borders. And there's just, you know, you, you can, uh, you can meet the love of your life, no matter where on the planet you are. And and I love the pictures that you posted recently, where they're showing those mining trucks from that place that your parents, the, the company that your parents both worked at, they are just incredibly profound to grow up in a community like that, where you're it sounded like it's very much a part of, it was a part of the lifestyle and the community that you grew up in. Yeah, absolutely. The, the community that I grew up in uh, is actually called Yekeba. It's a mining community. And it is uh, a very interesting place because the company Lamco was a joint venture between Liberia, Sweden, and United States. So the term Lamco actually means Liberian-American, and it was hard for them to get the S, Swedish, mm -hmm. so they, they avoided that one. So Liberian-American-Swedish Mineral Company it was that eventually became mining company, 
And they went to Liberia and they were looking for different types of minerals. Liberia has diamonds and all these other things. And many folks may have heard about blood diamonds and so on. And many of those, you know, horrible images and things you've heard about blood diamonds were in the area in Liberia and Sierra Leone. So right in that particular area. But Liberia has very big and huge mining resources. And uh, also in that area close to Guinea in the uh, Nimba range, that's the mountain area up there. And they have surface mines. So they're high mountains that they just peel off or they use explosive material to blow up and a dynamite and blow up the surface area. And then they just dig up the mines and then they load them onto these big trucks that you saw. And using, you know, precise Swedish technology, every six hours, you had these uh, trains going from the city of, or the town of Yekipa into the port city of Buchanan. So every six hours, you had 90 wagons, big wagons of, of iron ore going across into the port city of Buchanan. And then that iron ore was then sent all over the world. Wow. You often don't think you just sort of you just know that stuff happens, but you don't really think about the whole process and the communities around yeah. it. I mean, that must have been quite as we spoke before, you'd mentioned that, uh, you know, that you had spent some summers and you had spent some time living in Sweden. How was that transition for you going from living in, in uh, Liberia to Sweden? And there were some things that actually triggered that transition for you as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Yeah, so went to the uh, Lamco International School, also known as E-School. It was very interesting because it was a school that was, the first language was English, but because this was such a big international company, and in order to attract expats from all different countries, one of the things this school offered was languages for vernacular languages for all the different cultures or different people that came to, to Liberia. So at a young age, I learned Swedish. I went to Swedish school. Basically, half of the time I was in Swedish school, and the other half of the time I was in Liberian school. It's the same school, but I went to you know, different classrooms that were Swedish and different classrooms that were English and so on. And the same thing happened with the French people and the, you know, the Danish people and so on. So it's very interesting. And my father made it a point at a very young age for me to learn Swedish because his family was Swedish. Mm-hmm. And every summer I would go to Sweden for, you know, typical, he worked for a quote unquote Liberian American Swedish company, but he did have the typical Swedish vacation even back then. So he had six weeks of vacation. We would take a trip usually to Switzerland to visit my mother's friends. And then after that, probably five weeks we spent in Sweden every summer. When we made this trip to Sweden, I would go to Sweden and my family members in Sweden at that time did not speak English. So the only way I could communicate with them was by speaking Swedish. Mm-hmm. And my father made it a point that even though I was taking going to Swedish school, he would only speak to me in Swedish. So my father and I, I can count on my hand the times that he spoke English to me. Even when there was an English-speaking person, it would be a very strange situation where I would talk to my father in Swedish, and then he would then translate it to the other person, and we all knew exactly what he was saying. So it was a very interesting thing there. He was very strict and wanted me to really learn the Swedish language. And what a gift that was. We've done the same with our kids to a large extent in that 
When we lived in Sweden, we spoke English with them at home. When we moved to the U.S., we spoke Swedish with them at home so that they didn't lose the language because it's so easy to actually lose that if you don't use it. Right. So at one point, you actually went and you were in Sweden for a little bit longer. There was some disruption in Liberia. Right. So did you go to school in Sweden at that point? It was Uppsala, is that correct? Yes, I went to school in Uppsala. My family is from Uppsala. And yes, I went to, I went to school in Uppsala for, a, uh, for three years. And it was quite a huge transition for me because I had gone to, so the, the school in, in, uh, in Liberia was a private school. And then all of a sudden I ended up going to a public school and a much larger school. And, you know, back then it was all these people at that school. I was going into what was called Hög Stadiet. So I was going mm-hmm. into seventh grade. And many of the students there had come from Melan Stadiet, which is the just below that. And they all knew each other. And so when I got there, not only was I the new kid on the block, but I also was this dark-skinned person. And it was a very interesting transition. But thankfully, I had a couple of very good friends who just were really interested in knowing who I was and, you know, welcomed me with open arms. And I still have contact with these people. And they're as dear friends that I could ever have. I mean, they, they were really fantastic because when I came to Sweden, I really and truly other than my family members, I didn't know anyone other than my family members. It was a very difficult transition to go into a school there. And also it was a public school and a much bigger school. So it was a whole different environment. Yeah, no, I can imagine. And that's a very, it's a challenging time, even just developmentally as a kid. You're oh, yeah. Really trying to sort of figure out your own identity. So I would imagine that was very challenging for you. It, it really was. But, you know, it was... Like I said, these guys, Frederick and Arne in particular, they were just uh, wonderful friends. And I am so grateful for that, for their friendship. And they just were fantastic in helping me to assimilate because it was quite a different situation. It was, it was quite challenging. I can imagine. Well, it's awesome that you found your people so quickly. And then from there, you went to the boarding school where we met. And yes. that was a whole nother environment. I mean, and coming to America, you know, not in, not only going to a boarding school, but going to America to a small school in the White Mountains of all places. How did you end up there? So that's an interesting story because we had the war in Liberia and we had some, I had some issues with my father being sick and so on. So the original plan was for me not to go to school in Sweden. I was supposed to finish up my school in Liberia and then go directly to the White Mountain School or go to school in the United States. My, my, my father and mother both felt that the United States would be the place for me to go. It would give me the best opportunity, although Sweden was a fantastic place and so on. But if my, my father really had a strong love and desire for me to be in the United States, more so than in Sweden. Hmm. The interesting thing is, The White Mountain School experience was made easier by the fact that I had that situation in Sweden where I came there as an outsider, and that helped me to assimilate with those friends. So when I went to the White Mountain School, it was very easy for me to assimilate. It was a blessing in disguise. And I look at kids today, and you know, you have to be independent and so on. 
And the first trip that I made to the United States in the 70s, I came with my father and mother and so on. We, they would come here, we would visit. But the first time I came up to White Mountain School, my mother came with me. And after that, I would take the trip completely on my own. So I would leave Sweden, for example, during the summertime on my own, get on a plane, fly into JFK, get on the shuttle to Boston, take the the trailways uh, bus up to New Hampshire. And I was done, that was done completely on my own. And I I tell, you know, you look at kids today and you look at parents, you know, and you're worried about what's going to happen with your children. But my parents, I went through this experience one time and then they were like, son, you're on your own. We're going to figure out how this is going to work. And, you know, being from different cultures and so on, I was able to figure out and feel pretty confident and safe and understand what I needed to do in order to go from one place to the other. That's awesome. And if you think about it in context, for those of you who are digital natives, there was no cell phones involved in that process. It was, my parents put me on a bus to go up, but I certainly didn't have to take a, you know, a transatlantic flight and then make all those different connections. And I mean, what a journey that was and what faith they had in you as a global traveler, even at a young age. That's awesome. And and it really speaks volumes to your ability to, you know, to be able to thrive in, in that kind of environment with so many transitions. It's pretty cool. So during that time, because we've all had interesting adventures while we were traveling, and some of them were, in, you know, interesting, exciting, and positive, and others may have been sort of challenging and frustrating. What are some of the experiences that you had, maybe even at a young age, or maybe as an adult in, you know, sort of traveling or in transitioning between your different cultures that stand out for you? So, you know, it's, it's very interesting. I mean, I, I'm having traveled as much as I did as a youngster. So basically, from the time I was one years old until I was going to White Mountain School, you know, on my own, I had been traveling at least once to twice a year. So I, I was absolutely familiar with flying. It was something that what was a good experience. And there were times when I had to fly to different places on my own. So it was something that I was familiar with and I felt comfortable with. I can tell you, you know, there were some very interesting times that I, when I went through passport control, that's always an interesting time <laughs> when, when you go to different places. And usually... In my case, the first question that people in the U.S. would ask me, because at that point in time, I was, I didn't have a U.S. passport. I had a Swedish passport, and I actually have, in theory, three passports. I have a Liberian passport that I really don't use, a Swedish passport, and a U.S. There would be times when you would fly into New York, and you would they would ask all these different questions and, you know, how come, you know, you, you're coming from Sweden? Why is that? Is your father in the military? Why do you have a Swedish passport? Why don't you have an American passport? And it was very interesting in that situation. And I always had to talk about the fact that, yes, it is possible that there are dark-skinned people and Black people that are traveling into the U.S. that are not from the U.S., and this was in the early 80s, yeah. you know, is when there were not many black people, you know, traveling in that kind of environment with a Swedish passport. They would always ask additional questions and, and so on. So 
But, you know, when you start to travel with the two passports, an interesting thing that happened, you asked me, I, I flew into Germany one time to make things a little bit easier for myself. I showed them my Swedish passport because I didn't want to stand in line. And so I went through the EU passport so everything was quicker. Yeah. And then when I was flying out of Germany, I showed them my U.S. passport. And the guy says, well, there is no stamp in the passport. How did you get here? <laughs> so then I had to show him my Swedish passport. I said, this is how I got into Germany. So that was another interesting thing. So, you know, so there are times when you're traveling into Europe and you play around with the different passports to get you in and out. And you, but you have to remember which passport to use, you know. For sure. And I'm sure you probably that. Yes. No, we absolutely experienced that. And we've learned, unfortunately, for almost getting a big fine that uh, you always, if you have a U.S. passport, you have to use it when you're coming in and out of oh, the yeah. U.S. You know, if you don't have your U.S. passport with you, even if you're not going to use it anywhere else, you will be fined and you could actually be put in jail for not, what is it, identity fraud or, or something. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. It's kind of ridiculous. But yeah, so we definitely, I only use my U.S. passport going in and out of the U.S. And the rest of the time, I travel on my Swedish passport. And yeah. I think my kids do the same. It's just easier. But yeah, no, it's it's an interesting aspect of the way the world is moving. And But you do carry, like we do, the two best passports to have that you know allow you the most mobility pretty much around the world, which is really a gift. Oh, really absolutely. Yeah. And so you've had this incredible history that sort of, you know, created this blended life for you. And you've continued that on as an adult. You, if I remember correctly, after you graduated from White Mountain, you went on to Pepperdine to play tennis. And somehow you ended up with a lovely woman from South Carolina. Can you give us a little bit of that story? Yeah, absolutely. So I met my wife in um, Los Angeles. So when I went to school at Pepperdine, so I met her there, we started dating and so on. And we actually ended up getting married in, uh, in Sweden. And we got married at the Uppsala Cathedral. I don't know if you, you're familiar with Uppsala Domkyrka. So nice. we were, my grandfather was, my great grandfather and, and grandfather were ministers in the Lutheran church in Sweden. And my my aunt then worked for the Church of Sweden, and we were fortunate enough, not it doesn't happen very often, but I was fortunate enough to get married in the Domkyrka, which is the seat of the Church of Sweden. Nice. So not very many people get the opportunity to do that. So yeah, so I ended up uh, meeting her, and we went to Sweden for a little bit of time. She spent some time in Sweden, and that was an interesting experience for her being from South Carolina. But it was a huge experience for her because having come to Sweden and experienced it and lived in Sweden, one of the things that we do enjoy is traveling to different countries. So that was something that her experience being in Sweden really opened up her eyes and made her want to travel to go to different places. And so we enjoyed traveling to different places and uh, experiencing that. Yes, it was a wonderful experience. And, I, and she's a wonderful woman. Oh, well, I'm so glad you two found each other. And I heard a little bird say that you guys are hoping to do some more traveling together. And what is this about a mobile home? Tell me more. So as a tennis teacher, in some ways, you're a little bit on the nomadic side of things. You know, you, you, you can get up and teach. And especially after all of this COVID business and so on, 
you know, I'm, and I'm listening to your other podcasts and also this one to figure out a way how I can pivot and get more into doing more online lessons and, and so on. So I'm, I'm definitely doing that. So that means that I don't necessarily have to be in one location. So one of the things I would like to do is to get an RV and have one in, in Sweden and travel around in Sweden in, in an RV and go from uh, community to community teaching tennis. I shouldn't just say Sweden, but the rest of Europe and taking that uh, RV and you know parking it at one of my uh, cousins or family members backyard or something while <laughs> while I'm in the US and then when I come to Sweden you know and spend a few months there is hook it up drive around and teach my tennis and um, you know and then just enjoy all the other parts of Europe you know and that I've been fortunate because I have been to pretty much every single country in Europe as a young child with my with my family but I want to go ahead and do it now as an adult as well and the best way that I can see to do it is with an RV that's that's my goal I think it's a brilliant idea and I look forward to hearing about your adventures I hope you'll document them when they when they do happen and I hope you'll come visit us when we're in France too so a lot of people are moving in that direction of saying I want to control my environment I want to be able to move around and see things but I want to be able to sort of have my little home that moves with me. And I, I think there, yes. you know, there's newer opportunities to do that in different ways. It's pretty cool. Absolutely. And you know, my tennis teaching philosophy and the way how I teach is to try to make things as simple as possible, you know, but simple doesn't mean easy. And I also have this lifestyle that I'm simplifying everything. And, you know, we've gone through so many things and you're right. There's so many people talking about simplifying their lives and doing all these other things. And I also want to simplify my life, but simplifying your life doesn't mean it's easy. It's going to take some time. It's going to take some planning and it, it, you know, and it's definitely worth it because you have the freedom to explore and do so many other things. For sure. And, and it just, it really allows you to explore that nomadic side of yourself. And, and I really, I love that, that idea. I want to circle back a little bit on the tennis piece because I think that, well, for one thing, you're an amazing tennis player and an amazing and a master. Uh, see if I get the terminology right. You're a master of tennis? Yes. Or, yes, a master of tennis. So you teach tennis pros. Is that correct? Yeah. So I have two functions. I also am a what is called a clinician. So I certify tennis pros. So if you want to become a tennis teacher, there is a chance that I will be the one doing the certification, the teaching part of it. And the so when you go through tennis certification, there, there's a couple of parts to it. So there is a demonstration part and people go ahead and do that. And then there's an on-court, so you on-court teaching assessment. And I would then look at you and make the assessment and grade you. And then, of course, nowadays, there's an online part where you go ahead and get tested. So I would then look at your on-court performance and grade you based on that. So that's something that I do. I've been involved in helping with curriculum for the governing bodies in, in the United States, which would be the USTA and the teaching governing bodies, which would be the PTR and USPTA. I have done work for the Moroccan Tennis Federation and also the Tennis Federation of Trinidad and Tobago. So I've done work for them as well. 
I was just going to ask about that. So, so international certification, does there exist an international body that does certification or is that all done per country? It is all done per country. So it's a very interesting question here. So most countries in the world, the governing body of tennis, the big governing body of tennis is called the International Tennis Federation. And each country is a member of the International Tennis Federation. And within the International Tennis Federation, they do the coach certification and coach education. The United States is a little bit different. So the United States, the governing body of the United States is the USTA. So that's the ITF part of it. And then there is something called the United States Professional Tennis Association, the USPTA, which is one of the certification, teaching certification organizations. And then you also have the Professional Tennis Registry, PTR, which is another competing organization. And the PTR is an international, it's a, it's a much bigger international organization. So I think they have roughly about, the two organizations in terms of membership, they're roughly the same. So I would say something about 17,000 members per, I could be off by a little bit. And uh, the PTR has a larger international footprint. So that would be the closest thing to a global tennis certification. But uh, at the end of the day, Tennis is run out of London from something called the International Tennis Federation, the ITF, which runs the Davis Cup, the Grand Slam tournaments, which are the U.S. Open, the French Open, Wimbledon, and the Australian Open. So in terms of portability as a, as a pro athlete, what does that mean for, so say you want to be a you know, nomadic and go you know, teach whatever your sport is, in your case, it's tennis, and you want to go teach in Switzerland, for example, which they probably have their own guidelines. How portable is the, uh, are the standards that you carry with you? Is it like a nursing degree that you have to start over from scratch and take all the new exams in order to actually do your job? No. The I, so, so the ITF, whatever the ITF certification, uh, it applies to the other countries. But the, uh, the host country is the one that actually goes through the training and certification. But it is definitely transferable. And something like the PTR that has members and has a footprint in Switzerland, you could go there and say that I'm a PTR certified professional. And that certification would definitely cover everything. And even the USPTA has done a good job also in terms of its education and all the other things so that... If you were to go to Switzerland and say, I'm a USPTA tennis pro or a PTR tennis pro, uh, you shouldn't really have that much problem. The country that would probably be the most difficult one would probably be France. France, they are very much into just their own certification and their own internal development. So usually French players work with French coaches and there's a whole culture. It is the way how this the uh, grassroots level of tennis works in Switzerland. Is the technique sorry, in, any in, different in, in France? Yeah, is the technique any different, sorry. or it's really more the teaching? No, 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 no. It's, no, it's just it's just how the grassroots level works. So, for instance, in the U.S., the way how you generally do things would be through the college system. So the U.S. is big on the college system, mm -hmm. and 
the French organizations are, are stronger in through the club organizations and also in Germany. So you have big club organizations that play. But in the U.S., many, you know, in, in, to, in, in today's society, in today's open market, you have, you know, many, many foreign kids who come into the U.S. and go through the U.S. college system, which is fantastic. It's, the, it's, it's probably the greatest development play for, for anyone, you know, who wants to become a, a serious tennis player, going through college and, and getting a college degree and, and getting the experience of hitting with these players. College is absolutely a fantastic way to to develop and get into the next level. Very cool. One of the things that you you mentioned and you've been talking about, we've been talking about over the last couple of years since we reconnected, was the use of technology in teaching and in sort of understanding the dynamics of of tennis. And so you had talked a little bit about doing some remote some virtual programs as well as doing in person. What are some of the things that you can only do sort of remotely? And what are some of the things that, you know, you have to, you have to be there live in person to achieve? So one of the wonderful things, there is a, there are a few of these apps that are available, you know, video apps that are available that offer side to side viewing and so on. It's slow motion video capturing and so on that are fantastic. In my case, when I videotape a student, I've done this for so long, it's generally not for me, it's more for my student. And it really helps my student see what's actually happening. So I can tell a student, you know, you are moving your arm in a specific way. And they say, no, absolutely not. And you say, well, I see it. And they're like, no, 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 I'm, I'm definitely doing it this way. So the video then can show them what they're doing. So mm -hmm. I use video for technical analysis. And what I will generally do is I will slow the video down. There is a, a few different companies that are out there, one of them being Coach's Eye and the other one being Huddle Technology. And I use the Coach's Eye and I videotape someone. And usually I do it at a 90 degree angle if I'm working specifically on a technical thing and they hit the ball. And I can bring it into slow motion and I can stop at contact point. The wonderful thing about, you know, these particular programs is I can take a professional tennis player or I can take someone who does it well and I can do a side by side comparison and they actually are swinging at the same pace. So then the player can actually see where the contact point is and they can see where the where the breakdown in the technology, uh, breakdown in terms, not technology, in terms of their stroke. So the technical part of their stroke. They can actually see where the error or where the breakdown happens. And that's a side-to-side -side thing. So that's a wonderful thing. And, you know, you can take a video on your iPhone and you can send it to me and I can convert that into a coach's eye video or something and make a side-to-side -side comparison. And then I can send it back to my student. The that's other thing cool. that you can do is you can go ahead and you can videotape someone playing a match and you can do what is called tagging which means that as the player is playing, every single mistake they make, you can document it. And then you can say, oh, well, you lost this match because you were, you know, every single backhand you hit, you missed. And then you can say, well, the player thinks that I'm losing because I'm messing around my forehand. But you can actually document and say, okay, well, problem is you're missing too many backhands. Because in the heat of the battle, you don't really know what's going on. So yeah. having this type of technology is absolutely 
godsend. And tennis is a little bit, unfortunate. we're a little bit slow with regards to the technology. We're catching up. Other sports are, you know, football, baseball, you know, many of these big American sports, the technology is there and, and it's coming and it's really helping both the, the player and the student. So it's, it's great stuff. And I use it and I firmly believe in it. That sounds great. Do you foresee doing any work with VR where you can, or even AR, where you can actually play with people remotely, maybe by setting them up with sensors so that they can have a simulated environment? Or does that feel too out there? No, absolutely not. I mean, there are a few companies that I have had some discussion with in terms of, you know, setting up different sensors to show exactly how someone is playing and so on. But the thing is this, I see that more as a tool for highly trained athletes. And the average player, the average player out there, I think if they just work in terms of more of their own development and skill set, I think that would be an easier option. So I see the virtual part as something for people that have a lot of money or extremely high class athletes. But the average person out there, I don't see that quite yet. It may come in the future, but I think the average player out there can definitely benefit from just working on their own specific strokes and slowing things down. You know, tennis is a very, very interesting and dangerous sport because you have professional athletes that amateurs are comparing themselves to. Mm-hmm. So you have a 50-year-old man, as an example, playing tennis, and he can look at TV and say, wow, you know, I see Federer and Nadal hitting a ball a specific way, and I'm 50, I should be able to do what they're doing. And the answer is actually no, because these are extremely fit and talented people that are doing things that are remarkable. And you have people who are would like to be able to do it, but really can't do it because you know we're working in offices, we don't have the fitness, we're not hitting balls six, seven hours a day. And you come out and you play tennis for an hour and you try to do these things, the risk of injury is really, really high. Yeah. So you really have to be careful and do these little small micro workouts throughout the day in order for you to be able to do something even close to what these players do. Yeah, no, so I would imagine what, the level is just completely, you can't compare. And I, I think that's, yeah, it, it's- And uh, one of the things that I joke around is, you know, you can sometimes, you know, you look at 67 year old people playing sports, you know, they're playing tennis and golf. You don't see six year old women out playing soccer. You see them playing tennis. So that, you know, so you, you, you see 24 year old girls playing soccer but you don't see 50, 60 year old people playing soccer. And you, you know, and, and one of the things, you know, you see 50 year old men wanting to do something that a 25 year old person is doing. And if a 50 year old man is playing basketball, you know, he's not trying to dunk. He's just trying to get the ball in the basket, <laughs> but you will have tennis players who would come and 50 year old men. And I need to do exactly what Nadal is doing or, but you don't see someone saying, oh, yeah, you know, I want to go ahead and be like Michael Jordan, just jump up and dunk balls because you can't. But are but, you uh, saying like, we can't pick it up later? I mean, come on, you're, I, I'm getting disappointed here. I thought I was going to actually 
now that I can't really do the soccer anymore or football, whatever, depends on where I'm at. Can't I pick up tennis now? I may not be able to play like a, you know, like a pro, but. (laughs) Exactly. That's, that's the thing. What I want you to do is play tennis to your ability and do what you can so that you don't get injured. Make it fun. Hit lots of balls. Do the things that you can do. Don't try to do some crazy thing. At the end of the day, keep the ball in the court, hit the ball to different spots, keep the rally going, and then you're going to have fun. But if you go there and you're trying to hit some crazy topspin or something, and you're trying to do all these different things that aren't necessarily, that are going to just cause frustration, just go out there and hit the ball back and forth 20, 30, 40 times. You're going to get the best workout you will ever get, and you're not going to get injured. But if you go there and you say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to slide, and I'm going to do a split like some of these incredible athletes don't do it just no no and have fun with i'm it. okay with playing That's well enough to be able to i mean i like the social aspect of tennis and golf for that matter and i think you know i want to circle yes. back into sort of the global nomads thing in that you know a tennis racket is a fairly portable whatever tool for connecting yeah. with people and i think a lot of people you know, or they need sort of that one, it's like conversation starter. It's like, hey, let's just do a pickup game of tennis. Before we wrap up, I just want to, I want to know for you, from you, your impression of how tennis has aided your ability to connect with people as you move around the world. Oh, having an international background has been huge because, you know, I'm able to communicate with people from all different kinds of backgrounds. And it's definitely helped me in so many different ways. And it's given me so many opportunities. Like I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, I play tennis in Sweden. I play tennis everywhere in, in Europe. I've had the opportunity to work in Morocco and Trinidad and all these different places. And tennis is absolutely a huge international sport. And, you know, I've also worked with uh, professional Chinese tennis players. I, I didn't mention that. But it, it is absolutely a, a wonderful global sport. I mean, it, I, I wouldn't, I would say it, it's a, I think it's the third or fourth largest sport globally. So tennis in, in China is just rising like crazy. And you can have a great conversation about these incredible athletes out there, the Nadals, the Serenas, and all these other players out there. And Wimbledon is such a huge event, you know, and we we talk about the global aspect. I mean, the British Empire, you know, and the former British Empire, where you have all these different countries. You have India, you know, former British colony. You have Ghana, you have Nigeria, you have all these different countries that have a culture and history with tennis. So when you have, you know, Wimbledon and all these people from all these different countries are just watching this you know incredible two-week event and watching these incredible athletes that are doing things that are just mind-boggling to see these people play it, it, it is truly an international and global sport and you can travel anywhere and you can say you know talk about any of these great athletes and you can definitely start a conversation they are they're just amazing athletes i love that and i mean anything that's a global unifier i'm always fascinated by and I think that tennis is one of those sports that really connects people around the globe. And it's, uh, you know, it is a conversation starter. It's an icebreaker. It's a, 
It's an opportunity to do something healthy and fun together with new friends that you don't even have to speak the same language. And it's really a beautiful thing. So I'm so And you're to- so right on that. I'm, I'm just going to say this. You know, I've worked with very highly skilled Chinese players. And one of the things that I have been fortunate to do is through my training is that most people are visual learners. So you just copy them. You, you show them something and you ask them to copy it. And primarily, that's how I was able to communicate with these extremely talented Chinese players was through visualization and just showing. And they copied what I was doing. And I've had so many wonderful lessons with kids from Serbia, from all these other Eastern European countries and so on that spoke no English. And we had wonderful, great lessons with these kids absolutely just shadowing and following what I was doing. It's such a, a wonderful experience to be able to do that. I've, Like I said, I had great experience without actually saying a word, but just showing them and they're copying me. These lessons were extremely successful and the players really got a lot out of it. Well, that's awesome. And I just have to say, even though we both speak Swedish and English, I look forward to someday getting on a tennis court with you and trying to get you to get me going because now I've decided that that's going to be my new sport. Sounds like it's a very portable, good way to get some exercise and meet some new people as I move around the world. So thank you for triggering that uh, that interest in me. I appreciate it. (laughs) I remember you playing tennis. Oh my gosh, I I was awful. (laughs) I want you and your family to go out there and just hit balls back and forth to each other. Don't try to hit it too hard. Keep the ball going. Keep the cardio going. And that repetitive hitting over and over and over is fun, is social. It's a thing for the family to do together. And it's great cardio. For sure. And I'll have you know, we just went to our storage space the other day and we pulled out our tennis rackets and said, these shouldn't be sitting in storage. Let's do something with them. So... We might just actually get out on the court one of these days soon. You have to promise that you're not going, you might, you're going to actually do it. (laughs) Okay, I will. I will. I promise. And so next time I see you, you're going to have to hold me to it. Robert, it has been such a pleasure having you on the show today. And it's always a joy to connect, reconnect with you and uh, look forward to at some point our paths crossing again. But in the meantime, it has been just, thank you so much for sharing your story and your wisdom today. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Heidi. I really enjoyed it. And uh, thanks for all the things you do, because both your podcasts have been extremely helpful and useful for me. And thank you so much. You're doing such a wonderful job. So thanks. Well, thank you. That means a lot to me. And thank you, Global Nomads, for joining us today. It's been an honor and a pleasure to have you with us during this time. And if you enjoyed the show, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of the great upcoming episodes and check out some of our previous episodes. There's some good ones. If you really liked today's show, we always appreciate a rating and review. And if you do that, please let us know because we love to give a little love back. So thank you all and we'll catch you next time. Bye bye for now. <laughs>